The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, in the first half of our hour, host Bev Livingston will speak with Aaron Doherty, an independent filmmaker from Kansas City, Missouri. There will be a premiere of his film, The Best Day of Your Life, at the Music Theater Heritage, 2450 Grand Boulevard, at Crown Center on Saturday, November 4th, 5 p.m. Aaron's current film, The Best Day of Your Life, continues to receive recognition at film festivals. He wrote this story based on true events in people's lives, including his own. The film shows helping people understand fears of marriage. It provides entertainment and serious lessons. Overall, though, this film is a joy ride that you won't forget. The film was shot and edited in Kansas City, Missouri. We'll play the calendar at the midpoint of our hour. Then, host Melvin Merritt will speak with Lisa Patterson Kinsey of Protecting Kansas Children from Sexual Predators, Sarah Bremer of Synergy, and Alice Kitchen of the Greater Kansas City Women's Coalition about an event putting survivors at the center. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Since 1987, each October, communities across the nation join together to recognize the prevalence of domestic violence and to honor those who have been affected by violence with vigils, walks, and other awareness-raising activities. Stay tuned to hear how you can be involved. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Good morning, Jaws of Justice, Jaws of Justice listeners. And I'm very, very happy and honored to introduce Aaron uh, Daughtery, who is now releasing his second award-winning film, The Best Day of Your Life. And it is going to be shown November Fourth at Crown Center Theater, and we're getting ready to prepare you for a real treat from an independent filmmaker from Kansas City, and he's, I think, third generation of a business owner here and business leader, um, starting with his grandmother. So can you speak, Aaron, to the Kansas City experience that you have and how your family has contributed to Kansas City? Yes, um, my grandmother um, actually started doing, uh, had her own business, actually sewing and actually helping with clothes. Um, she's been doing it pretty much for, as far as I know, for a long, long time. Um, my mother followed the footsteps with her having her own business, Michael Boutique Store, which is um, in Lee Summit at Summit Fair. Um, she's been doing it for years, ever since uh, she, pretty much ever since she got married um, to my father. And um, pretty much ever since then, seeing both those women in my household, um, they pretty much inspired me to continue doing what I want to do, which is filmmaking. And, and uh, pretty much that, you know, if you want to have your own business, you can do it too. And that actually inspired me to actually go into filmmaking. And um, thanks to my mother and my grandmother bringing that to that entrepreneurship to us, it helped us to have our own visions that we can make our own product for ourselves. So, Awesome. I. I have experienced your mom's shop, and I understand how she is the fashion lady of Kansas City when it comes to uh, special events and first ladies and people who really need to dress to impress. So let's talk about you impressing people with your second award-winning film called The Best Day of Your Life. Can you talk about what inspired you to create this film, and what is it that a person can expect to see and experience in viewing your film. Absolutely. So basically, best day of your life. Um, it first off, it starts off with a young man. Um, it's about marriage. About a young man who's afraid to get married, 
And the reason why he's afraid to get married is mainly because um, his own future in his past with his parents uh, didn't go right, obviously. Um, so basically, you know, where the entertainment factor comes in, where people will love and want to see this film is he, of course, he falls asleep and he wakes up in a church and he's forced to be married by like a religious cult and so forth. But backstory of all that, um, the, the movie, I made the movie mainly because, um, of course, in my life, my parents are divorced. Um, my parents are still great to this day. They have a great relationship. Um, and I think at that time when I made the script, I was very, um, I was kind of very, I'll be honest, I was very upset how things are. It was a part of my life. I was like, me and my brother, we, we thought about making this film for a while, so we decided to like, hey, let's make a film um, based off a little bit of our lives, but a little bit of other people's lives, because we took stories from other people who actually had the same issues that we had with divorce and so forth. Um, but with marriage itself, um, the movie presents itself with the positive marriages and also the negative marriages. Um, it gives you both factors to understand that it's not always great and it's not always good. I mean, you can learn from it. And that's what the movie provides. It provides entertainment, of course, of the fantasy of him being forced to be married, but also gives you backslash to look in the mirror and realize, like, you know, I can maybe I need to find the right person for me. And that's kind of what the, the movie actually portrays of. It shows the... Um, a positive effect that you can actually get out of it and a negative effect of um, just be, you know, it's not always going to be sunshine and rainbows with marriage. It's always going to be something. So, Wow. Well, it sounds entertaining, therapeutic, and also really assisting people in having realistic thoughts about marriage. I mean, sometimes we see movies and, you know, we don't really take away anything, but it sounds like the best day of your life is going to have some takeaways mm -hmm. that allows people to think before they leap, you know, into marriage. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes working through the difficulties in marriage Absolutely. and not leaving too soon and giving mm -hmm. up on the marriage too soon. Mm -hmm. Did you in your film work have any need to learn other than your personal experience how to present to the public that may create judgments and other kinds of things for people and fears or helping people overcome by doing research and doing work to help the film make sense did you yeah absolutely um so with the film i think when we first started with the film we kind of already knew like the way it's Present it. It, it. it present it does present in a negative way where it comes off where you know he's he doesn't want to get married. He's for he's he's looking at it mainly because his parents doesn't want to get married. But um, yes, the, the correct answer for that. The audience will look at this and be looking like man, like we'll have second thoughts, of course, of not wanting to get married, of course. Mm -hmm. But um, in a way, when they watch the film. Um, it, it really is just showing the, the, the it's giving you the negative effects to un, have you understand that it's not always bad. I mean, marriage is not a bad thing at all, personally, I don't think. Um, it really, when we made this film, we want to just give the audience to understand that, you know, it's not total bad, even though it shows it's, it's like all bad, but it's like it gives some positive effects for people to understand that, okay, well, maybe I just need to find the right partner and so forth and find the right person and need to take time. Because obviously in his backstory for Derek, which is the main character of this film, he's followed through his own parents because his parents got divorced, so his own fears is projecting on them. So anyone who's watching the film, they will understand that and see that, okay, well, I just have to find the right person. So. Well, I can probably say, Aaron, that your award-winning film evidently has impressed many of the film festivals that have acknowledged it. Can you tell us a little bit about the Kansas City Film Fest International and how you got the Best New Director Award? That's quite an honor. Yeah, yeah so um, we actually first got into the KC Film Festival, which I was, that was our first film festival we got in um, at... 2022, um, and we won the Audience Award at that festival, um, which was very, very huge. We didn't even really promote it like that, and I think people just heard a word of mouth that it's got in and, mm -hmm. and so forth. Then, of course, our second award was Downtown LA Film Festival, which is really, really huge, because that was our first major festival outside the state, and they're a very major festival, and we met a lot of great people up there, um, like Amy Graham, um, a few other people as well. 
Um, then, of course, we got into the Martha Vineyard African American Film Festival, which is very, I know you're very familiar with it. Um, then lastly, this year, we just got into the Philadelphia Independent Film Festival as well. So we made a lot of major sets with Best Day of Real Life and definitely continue it. So outstanding. May I congratulate you again for your outstanding work. The Best Day of Your Life is not your first film, and so can you talk about some of the takeaways from your first experience so that our listeners who might have interest in creating and and establishing filmmaking um, can kind of get some tips from what you give them. Um, I understand that you graduated from Central Missouri State Mm -hmm. and you majored in digital media production all right (laughs) and 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 from that you became confident enough to create the first film which was called the night to remember on 21st street tell us a little bit about that film how how did it take off and how is it now in terms of platforms is it anywhere we can see it yeah so night to remember was the very of course it was very first project I was very wet behind the ears with it. I, I did not know, uh, I did not have all the filmmaking experience at the time. It's, at that time, especially, I was still in school, so I was really working. I was I was doing school, and I would go back on the weekends, and we would shoot it every weekend. Um, with this project, I would say the biggest improvement we had with this project, of course, one, I wasn't in school when we did Best Day of Your Life, so it made it a lot more easier, but um, the support I had from the first film opened so many doors to the second film. And Night to Remember was a, a very difficult project because I think the most difficult thing was getting the actors, being here on time, making sure we have a time limit. And that was a big problem. I think not the big problem, but the biggest challenge we had even going to Best Day of Life was the time. We have to make sure we get everything shot at a certain time. And I think anyone who's listening, you know, use the environment that you have around you if that makes sense, you know, if you have, if you know someone who has like a like a like a house, for example, mother ha- has her own store. At the time, she would let us use it for rehearsals, mm-hmm. use it for table read, and we would take advantage of it. So anyone who's watching this, I mean, of course, when we when we did Night to Remember, um, we had that advantage, but it was hard because we didn't really have the quite support because a lot of people didn't believe in us at that time. Mm-hmm. When we put that out there and they see this next project that we were getting better, they're like, wow, you guys are actually making rounds. So I feel like the biggest thing I would love to tell anyone who's a filmmaker who's listening to this is use the use your advantage of people around you, the people that you know who, who actually really care about you, who want to give you the option of locations because location is the biggest thing too as well so um that was the biggest challenge i would say going into best day of your life would would be most likely the timing of getting everything shot and done and you know if you don't you have to redo it the next day if the actor's not going to make it then we have to redo this and that's just part of it and it's more money but it's worth it yes it's very worth it sounds like lots of ups and downs but i want to in in terms of talking about timing i want to let our audience know that you created this film during COVID-19. So you had a lot of challenges in terms of getting people together, Mm -hmm. the comfort level. Talk about how the conditions were doing this during COVID for you. Yeah, it was very, very difficult. And I think um, when we we first shot, like our first stuff, um, which we got all the hard stuff done before COVID came, but Mm -hmm. we, there is a few extra scenes we wanted to shoot going forward. We were like, we want to extend it. And then that's when COVID hit, I think around January or so. I could be wrong, but it was like January 2020. I'm not too, too for sure, but 2021. But long story short, it was a lot of reshoots. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of more money to be spent as far as getting locations. Locations and, and, and getting people on time was the biggest thing. But we were able to accomplish and execute everything we need to get done, and we did. We, wow. we got it all done. Well, despite the delays of COVID, you managed to develop this film and get it all done in a two-year time frame. Is that the norm, or is that um, extensive, or for the kind of film that the best day of your life, is that an average filmmaking time, or how does that work? So that was very extensive. I, okay. I feel like that's usually with filmmaking time, and that's something we want to do in the future. It usually is you want to get everything done like on the proper day of, a, of like a full week or a full weekend. Usually what we did was kind of definitely, to me, to, me, to me honestly, I feel like it's a little, little unprofessional. Usually you want to get it all done in one week 
or you know get it all finished out and get it all scheduled where you have lunch at this time we shoot at this time we come back next morning but for us when we did of course best of your life it was really extensive and that was mainly because of COVID. so mm-hmm. it was a really it, it definitely messed it up but it would it worked out well it was worth it well, it sounds like you're a man that knows how to manage all the balls, keep them in the air, and, and keep it doing what it needs to yeah. do for your expected outcomes. Helping people understand fears of marriage um, sounds like you've got a little bit of comedy in this, you yeah. know, where we can smile about some of the scenes, but you also have those serious moments and and maybe moments of you know sadness when people replay moments that they've had in their marriages, or maybe they jumped out of their marriage too soon. Can you address how any of those factors uh, weigh in on the movie? And is it going to be more fictional and we don't need to try some of the things that we see in the dream that the character has? Mm. Or tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, um, like 50, 50% of the movie, 50% of the movie is comedy. I would say actually, Probably 67% of the movie is mainly comedy and about 30, 30 to 30, I would say 30% of it is drama. I would definitely say that. And mainly because we wanted, when we first started, when I first wrote this film, I wanted it to just be just comedy, but I decided I really want to pull the punches. I really want people to understand and feel it so they can understand, like, you know, it hurts, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, um, and people can understand that maybe they can maybe reevaluate their decisions while they're, you know, I'm not saying don't get married, but mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But like basically, um, decisions with your partner, you know what I mean? And understand that, you know, um, you know, I'm not saying we answer all those decisions, I'm not saying that, mm-hmm. but um, it actually helps touch people understand that, you know, it is funny, it's a great entertaining film movies fiction of course when he gets to the dream he's getting forced to be married that was kind of more for the entertainment factor but also in his personal life why he's feeling like that Mm -hmm. why is Derek feeling that way he's feeling that way because his affection of the past of how his parents felt so um, we wanted to just pull the punches of like bringing the character to life and also um, the you know how he feels in the marriage of and then he's forced to be married and that's most of that was all comedy of course so yeah. that's something you lo- I'm looking for for everyone to check out and see but it's it's all great entertainment there was a saying back in the day it was called I think shotgun weddings you know like if somebody yeah. needed to get married for whatever the reason pregnancy mm-hmm. or because a dad you know has yeah. chosen a spouse for his mm-hmm. daughter or what have you but I, I want to let our audience know that this is a joyride experience but the goal is the understanding that marriage is a serious matter and because our listening audience is so diverse and we have people who are incarcerated Mm -hmm. who are married who are trying to keep hope alive and Mm -hmm. and you know either stick and stay or come home Mm -hmm. to not having that spouse Mm -hmm. or that marriage Um, can you say anything or speak to our audience who may be struggling with the concept of marriage and all of the ins and outs and do's and don'ts yeah um i think what from my experience you know i'm of course i've never been married of course of course i hope maybe one day i would love to get married but um i would say even with this film for all the audience who listen to this who's going through anything with marriage um and implying that with my film of course i feel like what you can get out of it is that um, marriage is not perfect of course and that was something we when we made this film we knew we wanted to go with the punches but i feel like people can learn from just just audience can learn that um you know make the right decisions of your partner who you who you want to be with um and um just just know uh, just just don't be too fast about anything with your decisions of marriage you know like mm-hmm. if you don't get married you know you can there's so many people out there you know we can socialize and so forth but even with this film um, even when people I want people to understand even when we did this film with marriage we just want people to know that make the right decisions of who you want to be with um, it's not always going to be sunshine or rainbow but it is a lot of joy in marriage. So um, it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, that's mainly the most important thing I would want the audience to know is make the right decisions. 
um, and learn from the, the mistakes we also put in the film as well. So. All right. Well, let's let our audience know how to join us in viewing the film and where it's going to be and when. So yes. talk about our venue and also we want to let people know about the red carpet experience. So. Absolutely. So the film will be, uh, we have a big premiere. It's going to be taking place November 4th, Saturday at 6 p.m. Doors will open at 4.45 p.m. We have a red carpet experience that we'll have um, if you get tickets, uh, VIP tickets, you'll be able to get a swag bag, um, a T-shirt as well, uh, most likely a net warmer, um, a lot of great stuff in the bag as well. And you'll get to meet, of course, myself, the writers and the actors, and be able to take pictures and so forth. And you'll get first dips on seats. And for the people with general mission, they can be able to actually do the same as well, except they probably won't get the swag bag if they get the VIP ticket as well. But show will be at 6 p.m. November 4th. And... Um, it would be most likely uh, a big, big event for us. And um, the biggest thing we're taking away for this event that we would love for the people to see is that um, we want everyone to un enjoy the film, um, knowing that it will be uh, more uh, opportunities for people when they watch this film, knowing that we're trying to actually make raise money for a fundraiser for our next project, of course. But mm -hmm. we want to also let people know that we also want to help people who are interested in filmmaking, mm -hmm. who, who want to actually check us out and see like, hey, do you guys have any more jobs or anything else? We would love to help you out and awesome. so forth. So it's the more of opportunities too as well. So Awesome. How will sponsors and people who are interested in uh, working with the film and behind the scenes, how do they get in touch and communicate with whomever can assist. Yeah, so they can communicate with me or um, or even myself and my uh, my brother, Alan Michael Doherty, who's also in the film as well, and also communicate with um, Andrea, Dre or Nicole, sorry, Dre and Nicole um, through our phone. But they can also communicate with me um, and so forth. Um, and actually also follow me on Instagram, um, also on Facebook. My Instagram is at realghost underscore KC and so forth. And really uh, what we'll do with the sponsored videos, we would actually go ahead and actually play their sponsor videos before the premiere and actually to the people and actually also have it on the backdrop as well. So we want to give that support to the sponsors who support us. We will give that back to them for while we actually play in the film and so forth. Totally awesome. The um, other movie that you have created, The Night to Remember on 21st Street, is it on other platforms and streaming? Really? Yes, yes. Okay, tell our audience where they can check out your first work. So our first work used to, it was on Amazon Prime for a little bit, mm -hmm. and later on we decided, we I, I decided I wanted to get it on YouTube, mm -hmm. and um, if you want to actually watch the film, it's under our uh, channel called The Official Random Quality Films. Okay. And, um, so far, you know, we had a great run with it on Amazon Prime, and that film was actually at San Francisco Black Film Festival and did really well there, but um, we play the film there and also on Amazon Prime, and of course, it's on YouTube now, so anyone who wants to stream it and watch it, they can just go on YouTube and just take a look at it and watch our work on there from there, so. That's totally, totally awesome, and because you are just making this film so available throughout the United States, we know online and other kinds of uh, media, social medias, that it's international, mm -hmm. so I'm pretty sure that we're going to hear more about the works of Aaron, and I want to ask you to repeat again the way to purchase tickets or become a sponsor or just assist you in your growth and your film work how do people reach you again yeah so you can either reach me at my instagram as well which is at the real ghost underscore kc um, which under my link bio will be the eventbrite mm -hmm. so you can either click the link or um, you can also contact me through my phone um, through um, through my phone as well, which is the 816-889-8286, which is our, our number for it as well, to get in contact with us. Mm -hmm. um, and you can actually purchase tickets through phone. Um, and also the Eventbrite online through our Facebook page as well, which is under Random Quality Films. You can go and purchase tickets on there as well. And lastly, you can purchase tickets in person at your admission when you get to the door when we on November 4th at 445 when doors open. So they have the option to all around so totally awesome and i want to pitch your mom as the event 
contact yes. because she is really working with the sponsorships and yes. trying to assist in creating the fundraising outcomes that you're needing mm-hmm. with this film. So that is um, Andrea Carnes, C-A-R-N-E-S, at 816-665-2380. And she is the owner of Micah's Boutique. I think today we have enlightened our audience. I'm hoping to see Kansas City there. I know that I have lots of promises and tickets are moving. Uh, people are going to be in the seats. And we're very, very proud of you, Aaron. I'm, I'm delighted that you gave us time today as a guest. Thank you. And Thank may you. you continue to be successful in your award-winning career and all the other things that you do. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Are there any final thoughts that you have? We've got like one minute to wrap it up. What do you want to tell Kansas City? Um, anyone who's listening to this, definitely check us out. Um, and I definitely recommend if you have any, if you don't have anything else to do um, on November 4th, um, this would be a great opportunity. It's going to be really fun, a very entertaining film. Um, if you're free, if you have if you have a friend, if you have a date, if anyone, just come by. Um, it will be free to open for uh, tickets on sale. So, love to see you there. Okay, and you've got three views, right, coming up. What are the times that it's going to be at the Crown Center um, Theater? Give us those times again. 6 p.m. is the first view, which is the main event view, which for VIPs. Then the second view will be 745, and the mm-hmm. third view will be at 905. All right. So those dates that want to get started and get their evening going at 9 o'clock, you've got something for them. Thank you so much Thank you. for Thank you joining for us me. today. Thank you. KKFI thanks Charbar for helping to keep our volunteers fed during the fun drive. Charbar is a southern-inspired smokehouse featuring Kansas City-style barbecue and is located just north of Westport Road on Pennsylvania. They feature a variety of snacks, sandwiches, and entrees. For more information, including their menu, go to charbarkc.com. Now the calendar for the week of October 16th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri provides free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America is a very active group of mothers and others. You can learn where their virtual meetings this week will occur at momsdemandaction.org. Thursday, October 19th, 10 to 11 a.m., Empower Missouri's Community Justice Coalition is a multi-sector team of dedicated advocates who envision a future without mass incarceration. They invite you to join their virtual meeting. For the access link, please go to empowermissouri.org. Thursday, October 19th, 5 to 7 p.m., Hope and Healing for Survivors of Homicide will meet at 3200 Wayne Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. Please contact 816-912-2601 for information or follow social media for KC Mothers in Charge for updates. A list of services, meals, and hotlines specific to sheltering are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. My name is Terry, reminding you that these events and more can be found on the Jaws of Justice radio page on the KKFI website kkfi.org, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Stay safe. Thanks to all our listeners. Please stay close to your dial and stay well. We want to give a big shout out to everybody who contributed to KKFI during last week's pledge drive. We appreciate you. We'll now return to our show. Good morning, Kansas City. Welcome to Jaws of Justice right here on your Dow KKFI 90.1 FM, your community radio. I'm your host, Melvin Merritt. This morning, we will be trying to shine some light on the subject of violence against women. In 1989, the U.S. Congress passed public law 101-112, designating October 
of that year as National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. In the studio with me is Miss, I want to say, uh, Miss Sarah Bremer. Bremer. Yes, and she's true. a Ph.D. and her services, she's the director of Family Balance Services, and she's a licensed psychologist. And also we have in the studio is Miss uh, Peterson Kennedy. Right. And, uh, and we have someone else in the studio because we have the studio just loaded because we're going to have a lot of information on this particular subject. So I want you to stay tuned for this interesting subject on domestic violence because this is the month and this I've been told it's not that important about the month that it is has been de designated, but it's what's going on in our society as it relates to domestic violence. And I'd like to take this time and welcome our guests to Jaws of Justice, and you can introduce yourself when you begin to talk and say what you want to say. Okay. Um, I'll start. <laughs> Alice Kitchen. I am the uh, chair of the Gender Equity Task Force for the Kansas City Human Rights Commission. And we are very much aware of domestic violence, violence against women and children in our society. And so we want the survivors to tell their stories. The survivors are not getting the word out. If everybody knew what was happening in our community, they would be up in arms and, and creating reforms to protect people. And there are 500 persons who have orders of protection and the perpetrators have guns. So I think we need to hear the story. Lisa's here and she has a story to tell. The real purpose of our event today is to hear what really happens to so many. Hi, I'm Lisa Patterson Kinsey, and I am a survivor of child sexual abuse as well as partner violence. Uh, my child sexual abuse occurred when I was 10 years old. It was by my father. People ask why I didn't leave, why didn't I tell? Well, I knew if I told, I would be removed from the home, most likely, this was the 70s, and put in foster care. I knew the foster care homes in my, for preteens in my community, and they didn't feel like a safe place. So I decided to stay home with my known danger instead of leaving and going to all this unknown danger. My mother was also being abused, so she wasn't really a resource for me either, so I stayed. Um, stereotypically, I got in college, got involved with a dysfunctional relationship again, and began, um, it increasingly became um, violent, more possessive, until it finally got to a point where I decided to leave, and then he came after me one night, and that was probably the worst night. Um, he dragged me out of my apartment. I thought I could talk to him. I thought I could handle the violence because I'd handled it at home. But uh, this was different. It kept escalating, kept escalating. Um, and this is probably, this is the early 80s now. Um, fortunately, when, when he dragged me and threw me in his car and took off with me, someone saw and called the police. And only because the police arrived is that I'm alive still. Um, things happened very quickly. And after that, it was, I felt doubly shamed. I had all this violence, like I should have known better. I should have picked better. Um, and that's, um, that was, I had, to feel, I had to deal with that coming out to my family, coming out to my friends. I never disclosed my child abuse until I was in my 50s, so. so. Quick, quick question, Lisa, uh, because I hear it all the time about women staying into an abusive uh, situation, and I noticed that you mentioned that, that you continued to stay because people was asking, why didn't you leave? What was one of your reasons for staying? Well, basically, that I didn't have a place to go. And if you don't have another safe place to go, and also when um, people ask why I didn't press charges on my boyfriend after he beat me up, um, because he was leaving for boot camp the next week, and it was a small town, and I knew that if I charged him, he'd be, he'd be out, and in my community and come after me again. Um, in fact, he did come after me a couple of days later, but he was leaving for boot camp next week, so when the DA called and said, do you want to press charges? I said no, because I was thinking about my immediate safety every day, one more day alive. So. Let him go to boot camp, and that was like, what is this, I don't know, six months or something, and I thought, that'll be great. Now, he did eventually come back and was on campus with me, but I always made sure I was never alone ever the rest of the time I was in college. Um, so, I mean, I think survivors, we, um, we figure out a way to survive. We look at our, look our surroundings, but yeah. So apparently that you're out of that situation now. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing now with, you know, about uh, maybe advocating 
you know, against domestic violence. So, yeah. So today I am part of a group. We just started it um, last year. Um, I've been working on sexual on child sexual abuse for a, over a decade. Um, and started working on a bill up in Topeka about four years ago. Last year we got with a group of other survivors, and it's called um, Protecting Kansas Children from Sexual Predators. And we are work on statute of limitations laws, and we got our, the criminal passed last year, and we're gonna go back to get, to work on civil. Um, civil is really important for survivors. So I'm working in child sexual abuse as my focus right now, but it just, it definitely connects to domestic violence, partner violence, it all's interconnected. So we really just want to make, 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 well, make our community safer for everybody. Is other victims uh, connecting with you in terms of your activities with uh, advocating against domestic violence? The reason why I'm asking this question, because I was reading when I, before doing this broadcast, a lady by the name of Ola Ray, and she was the girl that was in Michael Jackson's thriller. And she was kidnapped after that uh, scene of uh, Thriller. And she became a victim of domestic violence. And so now she's advocating on that behalf because uh, she was treated really bad afterwards of that uh, that uh, showing of uh, the Thriller. And also we have in the studio, and I thank you, uh, Lisa, for your candid uh uh, sharing with the audience of your own personal experience and uh, we have uh, Miss Sarah Bremer and she's the PhD and with all you know and I know that uh, <laughs> she doesn't want any she said that's not important that's what she's saying but sh share with us that's actually not important um, <laughs> the not important part of this story um, yeah. I think that people really often have a hard time if they've never experienced abuse really understanding um, why a woman doesn't leave or why she doesn't seek help or why she's reluctant to um, reach out for services and a number of things that you said Lisa really um, come to the forefront of my mind when we do education about domestic violence so the idea that you could handle it sort of minimizing the actual risk and impact of the abuse I think is something that often happens also really reluctant to seek help really reluctant to cooperate with the law just because the risk is so much greater than um, just staying with what you can actually predict in your home so your story is one that we hear from so many um, people about the desire to just kind of predict what is actually happening. But also I think it really plays into um, the story, the important element of power and control. Um, you didn't leave your house because your your father, who was the primary abuser, had all kinds of power. And he had all the power in the household. And that makes it even more likely um, that a survivor can't leave, your mom couldn't leave, um, she couldn't stop the abuse and keep you safe. And then again, when the offender uh, when you met a young man in high school or in college he you couldn't keep him your safe self safe from him either because he had more power is that kind of your experience yeah I mean I think um, of course when I first met my boyfriend in college it wasn't an issue right, right. it said they're very charming and I thought I could be unequal I was equal yeah but when it comes down to physical things you're not he can hold you down with one hand so you have to trust. Of course, I don't have much trust to start with. So, but as I start seeing problems, like I said, yeah, I guess I did minimize definitely because I thought I can handle this. I've handled it before, and we'll just deal with it. Um, but yeah, so finally, it gets to a point where you can't. You've realized it crosses that border when you go, and I have to get out. And then, unfortunately, that's often when it can. It's a really scary time when you leave. Well, exactly, and there's not very many resources. I think one of the challenges in our society is is that we do have domestic violence shelters, but those beds are limited. There's not enough shelters in this community to um, keep everyone housed that needs housing. But then further, once you get into a shelter, what's your next step? Uh, Christina, do you wanna talk a little bit about housing and the need for housing in our community? Sure, my name is Christina Cherry. I am the program manager of Synergy's Domestic Violence Housing Program. And Lisa, I think you mentioned in your story that there was no place for you, you or your mother to go. And that's a lot of what we see for survivors who are coming into shelter. They come into shelter seeking that immediate safety, that day to day, I just wanna survive this day. But once they get there and they establish that safety, there's no place for them to go from there. There's not affordable housing options um, in Kansas City or across the nation. and so. 
so, you know, what we see is this bottleneck where survivors go into shelter, they have multiple children. It's hard to find, if you have five or six or seven children, it's hard to find housing for uh, a family that large that you can afford. Um, and so what we're looking at is this bottleneck of survivors coming into shelter and then not having anywhere else to go. So they either return to the abuser or they go to the next shelter. And that cycle continues over and over and over again until at some point in time it gets so risky that that, that risk of death um, greatly increases. And so really what we're trying to do is put some focus on housing that is low barrier and that is specific to survivors of domestic violence who understands that past um, the history that the survivors have gone through and being able to access those resources. Problem is, there's not a lot of funding. So that's one thing we're always trying to seek. You remember Kansas City, if you're just not tuning in, to, you're listening to Jones of Justice right here on KKFI 90.1 FM on your station. And our subject, as you can hear, that is about domestic violence and who you were listening to was Miss uh, Christina Cherry. And, but I wanted to ask the question to uh, Lisa, uh, and I think that uh, uh, Sarah uh, alluded to the fact that did this start in your home before you got into a relationship? And this is something that I've kind of heard. Uh, did it start with your father? Was it in your home? Right, yeah, so it started in my home, my father. I was probably about 10 years old. Um, it was a it was a shock to the system. Here's this person who's supposed to be your protector above all others, right? And he's the one who's hurting me. And I couldn't tell anybody because, I tell you what, child sexual assault, um, there's so much shame and fear and, and betrayal, and guilt. guilt, you have it all. And you remember, you're 10. So the decisions I made at 10 are not decisions I would make at 57. Uh, you know, and I did the best I could at that point, and I think I did well because I survived it. That was that is the goal to survive, and you start living in that fight or flight mode. So the rest of my, first my life at home, yeah, yeah right. So it started there, and it kind of just laid this groundwork that it's, that I I said we to talk about the stigma and what happens to you when you get abused when you're young and your developmental age. So then I think of myself as less that I don't deserve, that I am unworthy. So when another dysfunctional relationships, you're like, eh, that's not as bad as that one, and I'll get into this one. And so it just it just kind of continues to grow. You know, my, one of the things I'm thinking about is, is this something that starts within the home when a young woman goes into a relationship, she repeats what she's already experienced in her personal life as a term, in terms of a, her, her family, you know, a family nucleus. So there's been a lot of research around the idea that somehow uh, survivors pick the wrong men, or this is something that is um, on the survivor for how she picks men. But the truth of the matter is, is that there's no consistent literature that supports that there's something wrong with the survivor. Um, what we do know is that offenders pick people who um, they can abuse. Uh, and that is what we are often working against, is how do we get someone um, well enough to not be selected, and um, that's a horrible way to look at it, but so what happened to you is, is that, you, I mean, you were traumatized early, and so your boyfriend in college may have realized that mm -hmm. and realized that it was an easier um, person to kind of control because that groundwork had already been laid. And some of that is the challenge that we see then as survivors try to recover. There's certainly a pattern of recovery that's important for survivors as we think about how they get out of domestic abuse situations. They may be able to go into a shelter if they're lucky enough to get one of the um, limited shelter beds, but once they get there, then how do we begin the recovery process? How can we assist them um, in getting or finding recovery? And that's often just as difficult. The resources um, to kind of to do trauma resolution work are really important. But then we ask them to very quickly in a very short amount of time, be recovered from the trauma they experienced of abuse, sometimes child abuse also, then find a house, get a job, take care of your kids, pay all your bills. That's a lot of expectations right at once after they've come out of a situation where they were literally terrorized by their intimate partner. It's a huge expectation that may not be very realistic. Yeah, because it takes years, I would say that for a child sexual assault, it usually takes 40 to 50 years 
before you tell anybody. So the average age of disclosure to tell somebody you've been sexually abused as a child is age 52. So it's 40s and 50s. So that's why we're trying to get statute of limitations eliminated so we people have the chance to bring their abusers to court. But it's right, it takes a long time. I mean, I did therapy when I was in college. I did therapy when I was in my, thir- before I had kids, I went back and I said, am I in a good place to have kids? Because we're not doing this again. And fortunately I had a, picked, I was in a place where I picked a great partner, he's amazing, and we raised, uh, you know, made a great home. And that's, and I will give hope out there because there's hope out there so much. That's the greatest accomplishment my sister and I have done is that we stopped that cycle of violence. We stopped that dysfunction. And we raised, created two homes of love and support. And my kids don't know that life. And I'm really proud to say that. Well, and Lisa, I just want to um, jump in with how much strength and courage it took yeah. to find that. Good for you. Um, you have a lot to. Um, be proud of. That's a hard journey to try to find the energy and strength to recover and then go on and have children and do everything in your power to make sure it doesn't happen in the next generation. Because what often happens is survivors end up in a situation where they don't have the resources resources to recover and then it happens again and again and again. And, that, and that's what having effective resources to get these services to people is so important is because then we can actually stop the violence. And and then also you said something about hope and resiliency is the is the piece that really comes to mind. Survivors are resilient if we can give them the resources um, that they need to make to get better, right. to get yeah. to recover. And I would just like to add that um, the importance of the message today is to you the listeners out there that if you have a story to tell or a family story to tell, go on the Jobs with Justice website and look for this um, flyer that talks about putting survivors at the center. There is a QR code on this and also on the Facebook. So we want to hear your stories. We need to hear your stories. There are so many out there that are not reported and action does not happen and so it goes on and on and repeats itself so please go on the website for jobs with justice and go to the qr code and we can give you the link if the qr code doesn't work you know one of the questions that i was going to ask is that uh you know with lisa and having her uh, she has experienced some of the trauma in her life what is it that you think of when you're going you in a new relationship what would a person do in terms of flags going up to watch for certain behaviors in a new relationship how do you do that it was hard i mean at first i kind of just wrote it off i decided that i was in college i finally decided i wasn't going to get into a, a long-term relationship again because i didn't see the worth in it i hadn't seen a successful marriage or relationship so i just surrounded myself with friends and through that i saw what functional relationships are. You saw people who support you, who encourage you, are kind to you, who actually value what you have to give. And that was really, I used to really get lucky with a great group. And that's where I found my partner was in that group. We were friends for a year. So don't, I'd say don't rush into it. Give it time to, to learn about somebody and, and just be okay with being alone and saying that you're worth, you're worth having it all. Um, it's no one's perfect, but um, I, I, it's hard. It's, it really is hard. And two, you don't know if people. It, uh, abusers don't show their. <laughs> there are red flags. Being possessive, there are some red flags. That you guys might be able to tell, name those. Uh. Yeah. So this is Christina again. I think. You know, I want to go back to that piece of power and control, you know, so the abuser very much is able to say, okay, this is somebody who has less power than me. If you're looking at power dynamics between man, woman, black, white, that sort of thing, Um, traumatized, not traumatized. And so they're able to kind of choose their person. Um, But at first it's, it's very loving. It's very sweet. It's very charming. And so it's hard to pick out those red flags. Some things that we're looking for, does this person respect your boundaries, small boundaries, You know, if you say, hey, don't call me on a Tuesday, and they call you on a Tuesday, okay, so what are we looking at here? That's a small boundary that wasn't respected. And then things are going to build from there. Um, I think that power control piece, so what they start to do is they, they 
broach those small boundaries, then they start to isolate you. They take away your power from having that social support, from having those people who might say, hey, this person might not be treating you very well. They're stripping the power from you, and then from there, they're able to control the rest of your life and really start terrorizing you from there. And then it cycles through. They'll be loving and sweet again after a big incident happens and all of that kind of dissipates. They reflect back to, don't you remember when we fell in love? Don't you remember when we had this wonderful time? You know, so it's this constant cycle of power and control. So what what did you do with with that type of information and something, those flags pop up? and something happens like that, what, what is the first thing which you uh, share with a person that's possibly might be experiencing what she just mentioned, that they would begin to start taking your own personal power from you slowly and then come back and show you all this love? Right, <clears throat> right, and I really know that the people, um, so when you see that, when you see those red flags, it's time to walk away walk away because early on it's easy to walk away it's safer to walk away early it's okay to say this isn't the right relationship for me that's why you have to be okay with being alone you don't want that to be this huge draw to be in a relationship be stronger than keeping yourself safe coming out of something like that wouldn't it be best for a person to get into a support group so they can support her and maybe some information that she may not have that they can pass it on to her like this information that she has what uh sherry was saying is that people that have been traumatized through domestic violence need someone that can give them some information at the time that they might be bewildered and right yeah so when you start seeing that this is lisa um yeah definitely you see that if there's a support group people want different kinds of you different kinds of help if you like being in a group support groups can be good i know there's a hotline you can also call uh, do you have that number yeah i do actually um there's a citywide hotline that all the domestic violence shelters participate in answering it's 816 hotline That's 816 hotline, and we can get you all kinds of resources in our community, support groups sometimes, therapy sometimes, shelter if needed, all kinds of different resources. Sometimes court advocacy or just advocacy in general is what's most important and most healing. So those are some of the pieces that we can encourage survivors to utilize um, is 816 hotline. Yeah, and I think it's really important survivors Every time I speak, survivors come out to me. They disclose to me. So those who are listening out here know that you're not alone. There's help out here. We have about two minutes, less than two minutes. Could you uh, give your information in case anyone might be interested in contacting your organization? Sure. This is Sarah. Um, I'm with Synergy Services. And I would really encourage people to call 816-HOTLINE. That is a great resource uh, to get uh, services at any of the domestic violence shelters. I think that there's quite a number of us in the Kansas City area. We try to work together to be collaborative. Um, and get services to survivors as much as possible. Uh, And the best way to reach out is 816-HOTLINE. And for me, I'm Lisa, and I'm with uh, Protecting Kansas Children from Sexual Predators, and we do have a Facebook page, and I'll I'll give that, we can maybe get that up there, so people are interested in working on that, um, we'll be. Remember, Kansas City, you've been listening to Jaws of Justice right here on KKFI 90.1, and our subject was violence against women, and I'm hoping that uh, the information that you've received, that you would uh, take it at heart and uh, begin to start sharing this information. Go out today and have a great day, Kansas City, and go cheese. For the Daily Yonder and Public News Service, this is the news from rural America. Healthcare costs more in the U.S. than almost anywhere in the world, and a new study shows it's even harder for people in rural America to pay for it. It's almost like a grotesque catch-22, right? We're talking about the people who are needing health care the most, presumably, and also experiencing the most difficulty getting all the services they need. Erica Ziller at the University of Southern Maine co-authored the study. It shows about 1 in 20 rural residents go without health insurance. Overall, 13% say they delayed getting care or went without because of the cost. Now that emergency pandemic benefits making health care more affordable are ending, Ziller says those numbers are bound to rise. Whether that's going to be more dramatic in rural or urban places, 
I don't think we know, but I'm certainly concerned for the people out in rural America that are struggling. The research showed women were more likely than men to report trouble paying for medical care. It's not just access to health care that's harder in rural areas. Earlier this month, rural advocates from around the U.S. took part in the 2023 Rural Policy Action Summit. Restore, renew, revive. They're familiar words in the ongoing conversation to improve the quality of life in smaller communities. One focus of the summit was addressing limited funding for rural education. Our reporter Mike Moen spoke with attendee Heather Dubois-Bornan with the Wisconsin Public Education Network. She points out that while most of the state's public school students reside in urban areas, majority of school districts are rural. Bornan says schools across Wisconsin are under-resourced and that the need is definitely felt in smaller districts. In some ways, it specifically impacts rural schools, which tend to have sparse populations, very high transportation costs, and challenges with staffing, finding childcare for educators. Attendees of the summit also discussed expanding broadband to promote health care access and remote work. Survivors of domestic violence in Ohio's housing-strapped rural counties are benefiting from nearly $2 million in state funding. The money going to the Ohio Domestic Violence Network will help find apartments, enlist landlords, and certify additional housing units for people fleeing abuse. The network's Takara Sanders says a safe place to live is essential to creating self-sufficiency and independence. Housing is the foundation for literally everything. So helping to provide survivors with that basic necessity sets them up for success in the future. Research shows having long-term housing stability decreases physical, psychological, and economic abuse for survivors and reduces abusers' ability to use their children against the caretaking parent. For The Daily Yonder and Public News Service, I'm Roz Brown. For more rural stories, visit dailyyonder.com. enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. Please tune in for the rest of our 9 a.m. weekday lineup with the Law and Disorder on Tuesday, Alternative Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 a.m. on Fridays. Up next is Monday Morning Medicine Show with Dr. Mike. And at noon, Arts Magazine with Michael Hogue. Stick around for jazz and blues in the afternoon and Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale,
catch you with another man That's the end, little girl Jealous mind, and I can't spend my whole life trying just to make it toe the line. You better run for your life if you can, little girl. Hide your head in the sand, little girl. Catch you with another man. That's the end, little girl. and you're listening to 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio.